Welcome to HealthCast. This is your host, Adam Patterson. COVID-19 has required a massive reallocation of resources towards addressing the virus's consequences for public health and the delivery of medical care more broadly. Healthcare networks, both private and public, including the Department of Veterans Affairs, have restructured their practices to allow for an influx of COVID-19 patients, oftentimes deprioritizing the delivery of elective surgeries to allow for the treatment of inpatients with severe symptoms. However, academic and research centers have also reoriented their focus towards addressing the consequences of the pandemic. One of the most prolific medical research institutions in the country, Johns Hopkins University, has been especially active in contributing to America's fight against the novel coronavirus. The Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center maintains one of the most incisive and widely referenced maps for tracking the scope and toll of the pandemic on a global scale, a statistical overlay that is used frequently both within the United States and internationally. Beyond the Johns Hopkins University of Medicine, Academics and researchers within the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health have also been dedicating their considerable expertise to advising how to adapt America's care networks and public health resources towards managing the consequences of the pandemic. Notable among these is the Johns Hopkins University Center for Population Health IT, or CFIT, which has used a massive analysis of healthcare and population information ranging from electronic health records to community data to better help inform care management during COVID-19. This has recently taken the form of the Population Health Segmentation Framework, an initiative overseen by Dr. Jonathan Weiner, a seasoned expert in public health and founding director of CFIT itself. Dr. Weiner has overseen the application of big data to the JHU Population Health Segmentation Framework with the goal of helping hospitals better adjudicate the allocation of care and resources during the pandemic, balancing the need to provide COVID-19 triage with the imperative to attend to other serious conditions. Dr. Weiner's research has also been pivotal for advancing the Johns Hopkins University ACG system, a sophisticated model for tracking public health that has undergone considerable development to better refine and expand the comprehensiveness of its considerable insights. In light of his depth of expertise and lifelong work advancing the fields of population health and health IT, it is an honor to have Jonathan Weiner on the program. Jonathan, great to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start from kind of an overview question, which is more for audience awareness, which is what is the primary mission and focus of the Johns Hopkins Center for Population Health IT? Johns Hopkins, as you and many of your listeners are aware, is a very large uh, university and uh, medical center. And we're based in the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, but across the street from the Johns Hopkins Hospital and Medical Care System. And we at CFIT, we call it CPHIT or CFIT for short, view ourselves as linking together medical data, public health data, and community data. But you know, unlike our colleagues at the hospital or health system, our focus is really on communities or large groups of individuals that may be in, let's say, in a government health program or a private health program. So that's our niche. And specifically, as the name implies, Center for Information Technology, we try to make use of big data, digital data sources, whether or not it's for collecting and curating data whether or not it's for surveillance, for decision support, and now increasingly for uh, program interventions. Excellent. Which brings me to my next question, which is in terms of the broader and essential goals of population health and public health as a pursuit, 
How are IT and big data important to these fields? Well, first, let's pause. As I mentioned, we're in a school of public health, and many of your listeners may even be uh, in various public health agencies. Historically, a public health agency was one that focused on government, often safety nets, often things that weren't handled by medical care. And most uh, certainly local and state health departments have nowhere near the resources, for example, that medical care or insurance organizations do. So one of our goals, in fact, is to bridge, you know, the classic public health, that is, you know, a health commissioner, a department of HHS, CDC, with the medical care system. So that's one point. The other point, and so specifically, for example, I and my colleagues are among the first in the country uh, many, many uh, decades ago to work with insurance data, insurance claims. But now we're also among the first to try to integrate such data with clinical data, electronic health records, for example, EHRs. But we also are very active in working with classic public health data, like surveillance data. And as any uh, health commissioner knows, and as we all know, as part of COVID, understanding health and public health really gets us into social data, social determinant data. So that's probably like one of our third areas of expertise, working with non-medical data. It could be from geographic information about an environment. It could also be related to uh, social factors, economic factors, and human services. So that's quite a remit. And in doing that, we try to make use of the latest and greatest technologies and analytic tools. And we collaborate with our Department of Computer Science at Johns Hopkins. We collaborate with the Applied Physics Laboratory, a very, very big uh, technology center that serves heavily government. And we apply artificial intelligence. We apply database and cloud technologies. But frankly, although those are important, they're somewhat secondary to the content knowledge and uh, all of the challenges of making these data work to really help people. So I know that's a broad domain, but it's an exciting time because we've never had more tools and more data available to us than we do this very day. Yeah, I can only imagine how essential just the sheer pace of tech modernization, especially in health IT, has been to really advancing that field as a whole. And speaking of more contemporary concerns, this is one that is obviously being addressed at all levels of healthcare to even the more theoretical aspects of healthcare modernization and public health. But it brings me to the question of how has the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic changed the Hopkins CFIT's general focus and priorities, at least for the time being? Well, there certainly has been an impact. Well, firstly, obviously, COVID-19 is uh, critical today, but it also is something that has been a wake-up call for the nation. I'm pleased that my colleagues at Johns Hopkins are really the leaders or one of the two or three central or private organizations in the world, actually, not just in the country. That's not me per se, although we at CFIT are involved in five or six projects, I'll tell you about it. But understanding, you know, biosecurity and pandemic plans is something that we have been talking about for decades, and now finally people are listening. And in fact, if your listeners aren't familiar with the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, it is the number one site at 4 billion hits a day for all things COVID data. Now, specifically, data has been central. You know, whether or not it's helping at first to understand uh, who is getting sick and how we treat them, that's more my clinical colleagues, but we've been trying to assist on that. But that's really more some of our epidemiologists at Johns Hopkins. Our expertise at CFIT is really working with large population databases from insurance companies or public health agencies. And some of the tools that we've developed, maybe we'll talk about a little bit later, called Johns Hopkins ACGs, are really a tool for identifying 
how to slice and dice ICD codes. The International Classification of Disease is from the World Health Organization, and we have, what, something like 150,000 different codes for every diagnosis. And so we've helped organizations across the world, actually, use that information to identify people at risk for COVID. We also have done a lot of work over the years with social determinants. And unfortunately, things like housing, job and economics, transportation. And unfortunately, as most of your listeners know, by now in the epidemic, we're aware that COVID doesn't affect everybody equally. So we actually have two or three high-level analytic projects that we've done using surveillance data in the Johns Hopkins COVID database from all over the country, trying to look at patterns. And the last thing that I'm proud of, you know, we have a lot of experience at CFIT at Johns Hopkins in doing population segmentation. I think we'll talk a little bit about that maybe later. But that is when you look at a million people, 100,000 people, obviously government agencies and public health agencies and in pandemics like this, you know, we have to prioritize who needs the greatest help. So I and my colleague, co-director of CFIT, Dr. Hadi Karatsi, and another clinical colleague wrote a blog at the Health Affairs, the journal Health Affairs, that is trying to lay out for government, for private agencies, an approach to taking all the data we have so that we can segment populations. So in fact, if your listeners just put in COVID segmentation and health affairs, it should pop up. And we've developed an approach using available data linked across healthcare settings, public health settings, things like the Johns Hopkins Corona site, so that we can get a handle on who has the greatest need for a whole array of activities. So I could keep on going, but I think that's enough to give you a flavor of the things both we at CFIT as well as other colleagues at the Johns Hopkins are doing in the data front on COVID. Absolutely. And I appreciate the background there because I was really curious about what the essence of the population health segment approach was and how it really does apply to care management amidst the pandemic. So again, in any of your listeners who have been involved in classic public health or in population health within you know, insurance companies or healthcare organizations, know that the classic approach is to take a population, you know, again, a million people. And if you think about a population pyramid, so if you have a million people, even 100,000 people, some are at the tip of the pyramid with the greatest need and some are at the lowest. And so we, coming from a public health approach using epidemiology and care management, everything we do with data, we tend to think like that. We don't have enough resources in public health to provide all care to all people, whether or not it's needed. So we really need to target our resources. So, you know, our Johns Hopkins ACGs, which, you know, I can tell you about a little bit more later, is widely used to do that in medical care. So our population health segmentation for COVID really inputs data from a variety of sources. It looks at how serious the COVID is. Luckily, most people have COVID that isn't that serious. Of course, it can all be all the way up to an ICU or even death. So we've developed a typology for categorizing with our clinical expertise. You know, our center is made up of both clinicians and data people and social scientists. The second component of it is that obviously no recent health threat that I can think of has really shown how important community is and social factors. So we're very well positioned to identify what's happening in geographic areas. So in other words, if someone is presenting with flu-like symptoms in an area where there's no COVID, well, chances are it's not COVID. But if you're in a very heavy prevalence area, then you know, there's a good chance that it is COVID. And of course, the testing is, it's important to get all that information. But as your clinical readers probably know by now, the testing is quite confusing at times. But we do capture that. 
We also um, try to, in our segmentation approach, try to take in consideration the person's medical conditions. In general, you know, underlying conditions are really hugely important in understanding COVID. And then lastly, another thing that has shifted and isn't going back, and this is another area we work at at CFIT, is telehealth. During the peak of the pandemic, and unfortunately that's coming back as we're talking today, there's a peak of the pandemic, uh, you know, as much as 50 or 60% of all interactions are via telehealth. So everything I've just described in forward-thinking organizations can be linked and curated, and we use it to develop uh, risk scores for populations that would then allow either the government or private organization to manage care, to do outreach, for example, for immunizations, to monitor. You know, we've never had actually better surveillance in this country than we have in the last several months for COVID. So again, I've described a lot, but anyone that is interested should go read the article by Karazi and Weiner in Health Affairs. And then if for the listeners that actually are involved in organizations, we'd be happy to share some of the tools and algorithms that we've developed. Again, it's not fully complete, but our goal at Johns Hopkins CFIT was to get the big data, the health informatics, the human services informatics community on board. Because, you know, we've never had as much data as we do today. And my thinking as a, you know, as a public service mindset person at a public health school is it really is incumbent on us to use these data to help people. After all, you know, corporations, you know, some are good, some are not so good, but they use the data for interests that aren't always in the public's interest. So again, I'm pleased to be describing this to a largely public sector audience that's listening in today. Absolutely. And in terms of the, you touched on this a bit earlier, I want you, if it's possible to extrapolate a bit on this, about the ACG model. Specifically, what is the basis of the ACG model and how has it been applied to address the pandemic? Sure. So I and some other colleagues at Johns Hopkins, mainly the School of Public Health, but also the School of Medicine, we're early in analyzing data in insurance companies, health maintenance organizations, public health organizations. And as I mentioned, you know, we tend to focus not on the one patient or one visit, but really on the population. And what else is important is a person that has diabetes that comes in to see the doctor all the time, you know, is probably in better shape than someone that is not coming in. And we always have to look at not just who's coming into the medical setting, but who's not. So our thinking was to take the data that in the early insurance plans, Medicaid, you know, the biggest state federal program for the poor, they've been capturing data for years and no one looked at it. And I and my late colleague, Barbara Starfield, is a very well-known pediatrician. We started to, in the era of what was called DRGs, diagnosis-related groups, actually back in the uh, 80s, a hospital was revolutionized by looking at diagnosis codes, ICD codes within the admission cycle, within an episode. And we used an approach, it originally was called ambulatory care groups, now it's adjusted clinical groups, or really, frankly, just Johns Hopkins ACGs where we take into consideration all of the ICD codes, and again, that's about 150,000 factorial, and all of the pharmacy information from the Food and Drug Administration's NDC codes, that's also 100,000 factorial, it's a lot of combinations. But we use it to develop cogent categories to segment populations. And today, ECGs are, you know, we've written about 2,000 academic papers, I'm proud of that, but even more so, it's in use in 25 countries or so for 250 million patients. And it's used by government agencies, by private organizations. And so it's one of the most widely used analytic systems for understanding characteristics of populations. It's also, I appreciate 
you know, although I'm a professor of public health, I understand the importance of industry. And it is one of the largest technology transfers at Johns Hopkins and actually in the country. So we work with IT companies and vendors all over. It's very heavily used in the Department of Defense within the government sector. It's used by 22 or so Medicaid programs. It's sometimes used to pay HMOs and insurance companies. So if your readers are interested, all they have to do is put Johns Hopkins ACGs and they'll find our webpage. And, you know, we're very anxious that anybody that has clinical information, you know, takes advantage of tools like this. And we also make it very available to the public sector and to academics as well as industry. That's wonderful. Yeah, I just want to say we had an event earlier today of this recording where we had a panel that addressed open health data and the use of democratizing data to address public health issues. So I am absolutely certain our audience would find that really valuable. And it kind of brings me to another question because we're talking a lot about the current pretty rapid expansion and sophistication of public health methodologies and health IT, which brings you to the next question, which is in terms of the horizons of the possible, in terms of what we're looking at in the future, What does the future of population health IT look like in terms of new technologies and their application, like, say, artificial intelligence? Yeah, well, we've never had more data. We've never had more sophisticated technology. I've been at this business a long time, and this is a very exciting time. And I'm also very pleased that a third of my energies go into training the next generation. And I can tell you there's a lot of smart uh, people interested in public health and human service. But I'd say we're only about 5 or 10% of the way there. I think the biggest challenge is, you know, the academics or the technology vendors are sometimes many steps ahead of what's on the ground. So, yes, artificial intelligence, machine learning, natural language processing, advanced techniques, we apply all of them and have some of the greatest scientists in the world available to us. We're very lucky. And once in a while, we make advances where those high-end skill sets are necessary. But frankly, today in America, I've worked with many organizations that have electronic health records. Even though 100% of the hospitals have electronic health records, for example, only about 5% know how to use them for analytics like we're talking about. And we're lucky in the state of Maryland to have a very excellent health information exchange, HIE, known as CRISP. And without a HIE such as that, Hospital A doesn't talk to Hospital B, Public Health Agency A doesn't talk to Public Health Agency B, and the insurance companies don't talk to each other. So what good is advanced uh, artificial intelligence if we don't have reasonable data? In fact, it's often just used as uh, an alternative to valuable data. So that said, I'm a big proponent of getting the data in order, curating it, making sure it's clean, making sure people know how to use it. But And some of that does make use of new technologies, new security, which of course is very critical, new types of web and ways to curate and store the data. And yes, analytic technique, you know, whether or not it's some of our existing sophisticated econometric or statistical technique or the new artificial intelligence will be important. I am a little more enamored right now with various types of natural language processing, since one of the problems with about half of the electronic health record is right now it's unstructured and without various types of NLP. And then the other, not to forget, you know, most of your listeners are probably in the data storage, data analysis business as I am. But increasingly, as consumers make use of mobile health technologies, direct access by communication technologies, we can't forget about that. You know, so much of public health involves behaviors and people following up on their health and human services needs. So that's a whole uh, aspect, consumer health technology or device 
So it really is a very exciting time. And I think it's incumbent that, you know, whether or not you're a policy person or a public health person or a medical person, whatever it is that interests you, even if you're not a geek per se, that you understand that these tools are really central. So I hope some of that touches a, a responsive chord. And I don't know, Adam, other questions that you might have? I think that about covers it. I just want to say this is absolutely phenomenal. And I'm absolutely certain the exact kind of topics our listeners are really engaged with and find fascinating. So thank you for coming on the program. Well, sure. And I hope I've tried to, uh, I know your listeners are practical people and trying to make a difference. So hopefully some of the things I mentioned, they can find easily. I don't want to overpromise, but I'm pretty easy to find too. If after, you know, making an attempt or two, finding some of the things I identified, they can't, you know, feel free to reach out to me. And thanks for the interest, Adam. And I hope we talk one day again soon. Absolutely. And thank you for coming on the program. Take care. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris, Adam Patterson, and Faith Ryan. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.